One of the great existential questions which people everywhere have to grapple with is the question, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Who are you for? Are you for him? Now, several millennia ago, a great spiritual leader, perhaps with a voice like mine, stood up and challenged his congregation who had foolishly chosen to worship a golden calf over the God of heaven, challenged them with this question. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And one by one, those who wanted it to be known that they were on God's side, they rallied over and stood next to him, next to Moses. Now in today's text, Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, our Lord Jesus will strike the very same chord as he addresses three critical questions. They'll all be projected on the screen behind me. First is this. Where do you stand in terms of your relationship to the Son of Man? Secondly, what is the danger of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Thirdly, how must you respond when your faith puts you in trouble with the authorities? Luke chapter 12, 8 through 12. Jesus himself speaking to his disciples. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And every I'm sorry, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Three points, all of which as spoken in Jesus' very own words, I will acknowledge you in heaven if, it's a big if, you acknowledge me on the earth. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also, or also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, I believe that all of us here this morning are familiar with the expression quid pro quo. It literally means one thing for another. I will do this for you if you agree to do that for me. Now, there's always a selfish intent in a quid pro quo. You engage in it expecting some kickback. You expect to receive something back for giving something. But if you look at our text this morning, you'd realize that there is no selfish intent in Jesus' statement in this passage. It reads more like a warning of the natural consequences of failing to do something. And that something is to acknowledge 
the Son of Man publicly? Now, there are two questions that arise from Jesus' statement. The first of which is this, who is the Son of Man? Now, he uses the term, well, who is the Son of Man? Son of Man is a title that Jesus used nearly a hundred times in the New Testament. He used that title to refer to himself. Now, one of the most famous times that he used it was when he asked his disciples directly, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is how they responded. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus followed that up with a more direct, a more personal question. But who do you say that I am? Listen to Peter's answer. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this exchange that happens between Jesus and Peter communicates two fundamental truths. One, Jesus was both son of man as well as son of God. As the son of man, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah through whom God was going to save the world. And so people had waited and waited for centuries, for this Son of Man to come and deliver them. As the Son of God, let me make sure I am where I'm supposed to be. And maybe I am making sure of where I'm supposed to be because I really don't want to confuse myself or you. Maybe you really need to get this too. So Jesus was both son of man and son of God. As the son of man, he was the long-awaited Messiah. God was going to save the world through him. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, we hear him saying, For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, the son of man, as a title is synonymous with other titles like shepherd, savior, redeemer, deliverer. Because you see, God had sheep, and sheep were lost, and they needed a shepherd, they needed a savior, they needed a deliverer. So son of man would be the title of the one who would come to save lost people. A son of God, Jesus descended from God. Having been in the beginning with God, having been equal with God, but he laid aside all of that. He laid aside his glory. He became a servant. He lived a perfect life. He did things on the earth that only God could do. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin, and after three days, God raised him miraculously from the dead. 
Let's take a quick minute to listen to this 56-minute video clip. 56-second video clip, sorry. What is his name? His name is Jesus. There is something unusual about him. It's rumored he works miracles. Get up and walk. 5,000 came to see him. Come with me, and I will give you a whole new life. He has a power. A power to cause trouble. What is that? Peter, come. I will crush any rebellion. My son. Don't be afraid. Everything is possible with God. Are you the son of God? I am. Son of God and Son of Man. So that's the first question that our text raises. Just who is this Son of Man? The second question that Jesus' statement raises is, what does it mean to acknowledge the Son of Man? Now, interestingly, the word that, that Jesus uses for acknowledge is the Greek word homologeo which means to confess or declare publicly. So how do you confess or declare publicly this son of man? Now, the very word suggests how you do it. You do it with words. The verb logeo means to say, to actually say with your mouth. And so you say with your mouth that you are in a relationship with the Son of Man. It fascinates me sometimes that you're on social media and somebody who wants you to know that they are in a new relationship will tell you, in a relationship with so-and-so. I'm sure you've seen that on Facebook, haven't you? They make it public. Public. So your testimony or your confession of faith must also be public. You confess that you have faith in the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's testimony earlier that we referred to was this. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, he knew that. He didn't keep it to himself. He said it publicly. When a village adulteress came into contact with the Son of Man, she immediately gave up that lifestyle. The Bible tells us that she had had many husbands, none of whom were her own, but she gave that up. And Luke gives us a glimpse of her running back to her village with her public confession. Come, see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. He must be the Christ. Now, some years later, after watching how Jesus had been falsely accused, unjustly tried, wrongfully condemned, forced to carry his cross through the streets, pierced with a, with a spear, and how he had cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Roman centurion's testimony was this, truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, if Jesus went through all of that for me, how can I ever be ashamed to publicly acknowledge 
that I believe in the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. And so each of these was a public confession that involved words. Now, I'm sure that you want to ask me this question. Can't I also acknowledge Jesus through a lifestyle that flows out of my Christian faith? And the answer is yes, of course you can. And you should. It follows that if you have faith in Christ, your lifestyle, the way you live, should reflect that. But that must never be at the expense of your verbal confession. You and I must never say, I don't need to tell anybody that my faith in the Son of Man is what makes me a Christian. All I need to do is live the Christian life. If you say that, my pushback to you would be this. Why take the easy way out when Jesus has already said, it is the one who confesses or acknowledges me before men that I will acknowledge before the angels in heaven. Our second point is this. Again, in Jesus' words, my father will forgive every sin except this one. Now, this is a very controversial statement, isn't it? How can, I, how can Jesus say that I will forgive every sin except this one sin. This has been a debate that has rocked the church for centuries. Will God forgive me only of this amount of sin and no more? That's not what God is saying. God is saying, Jesus is saying here, that God has unilaterally decided, he has made this decision all by himself. He has decided which sin he will forgive and which type of sin he will not forgive. Let's look at his own words. Jesus says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now the first thing that we notice about Jesus' teaching is that there is a difference between speaking a word against the Son of Man and speaking a word against the Holy Spirit. That's the big difference. There's a difference. Speaking, against, speaking a word against the Son of Man and against the Holy Spirit is the same as rejecting them with your words rather than acknowledging them. And rejecting them with your words is the same as sinning against them. And so Jesus says that everyone who sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now we have had numerous examples from Scripture of people who spoke against Jesus and sinned against Jesus who were in fact forgiven. And so two examples come to my mind. One is the Apostle Paul, who by his own account was a blasphemer. He blasphemed Jesus, he spoke against his name, and he was a persecutor of all those who believed in his name. And so this is, this is um, Paul's personal account in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, because formerly, in other words, in times past, before, I was a blasphemer. I spoke against Jesus. I sinned against Jesus. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. 
but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. In other words, I sinned against Jesus, but I was doing it unaware of the fact that I was doing it. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So I sinned against Jesus. And because I did it ignorantly, I received grace and forgiveness, which overflowed on my behalf. So that's the first example. The other example is that of the most famously forgiven person in the New Testament. I believe that everybody knows him as the prodigal son. The younger of two sons. He went against everything that Jesus taught regarding decency, morality, respect for parents. And after he had wasted everything in a far country, he lost it all, he returned home to his father with the words, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And all of us hear the father's words to him. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. I will bring the, I will cause the best robes to be brought so that you could be clothed in them. I will cause the fattest calf to be slain so that we can have a feast together and rejoice. Because although you were lost, you are now found. You had gone away from me, but you have returned to me. So those who sin against Jesus can be forgiven, provided that they ask for his forgiveness. But conversely, Jesus says this, If anyone blasphemes or speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, they will never be forgiven either in this life or in the one to come. So this, asks, this begs three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? We know the Holy Spirit as the powerful third member of the Godhead, the Trinity. But if you read the scriptures in terms of what it says about, what they say about the Holy Spirit, you would notice that the Holy Spirit's work differs from that of the Father and the Son. God the Father works in a certain way. God the Son works in a certain way. God the Holy Spirit, he works in a certain way as well. And this is his work. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads people to faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who opens up their eyes and opens up their hearts so that they can see their sin and become aware of their need for Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit, God's word teaches us, who convicts people, he convicts the world, or he makes them aware of their sin. He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, he makes us aware that we're sinners, he makes us aware that we are in need of God's righteousness. He makes us aware that there is a judgment coming to which or before whom, before which we'll all stand. And so in the absence of Jesus, who having died, ascended back to the Father, the Holy Spirit is the one who is active in the world carrying out God's redemptive work. Now the Holy, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul taught us in Romans 8 that it is the Spirit. We're still trying to answer the question of just who is the Spirit. So Paul tells us 
in Romans 8 that it is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It is the Spirit who adopts us as children of God, sons and daughters of God, so that we are enabled to say, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit who witnesses with our spirits that we are indeed children of God. It is the Spirit who leads us and guides us into all truth. It is the Spirit who intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. So you recognize just how important the Holy Spirit is. Second, the second question that it asks us is, what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Now, even this is a controversial issue in the church as well. Because some people say that we blaspheme when we attribute Jesus' work to the power of Satan. We dealt with that a few Sundays back in Luke 11, 14 to 20, when people were saying that Jesus was casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. Others say that we do it when we abandon our faith, as the Apostle Paul warned us in 1 Timothy. In that letter, Paul mentioned to us that in the last days, many who say they are Christians will depart from the faith. They will depart from spirit-empowered preaching. They will go after teachers with itching ears, and they will believe doctrines that are taught by demons. Some people say that we blaspheme when we persistently and obstinately reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus. I believe this third one is closer to the truth. Because you see, what is the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus? That he was both son of God and son of man. And when we persistently and obstinately reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus, it means that if we are rejecting, we're not accepting, right? Why is speaking against the Holy Spirit the unpardonable sin? I believe the answer is simple. If you continue to reject and to speak against the Holy Spirit, you cannot come to faith in Christ. You cannot come to faith as long as you are continuing to obstinately and persistently reject the Holy Spirit. And if you do not come to faith in Christ, you cannot be forgiven of your sins either in this age or in the one to come. And so no one can ever be forgiven who does not acknowledge the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world to confirm that Jesus is both Son of God and Son of Man. That is serious. That is serious. Our third and final point is this, again, in the words of Jesus. You can count on the Holy Spirit to put words in your mouth. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
What is Jesus doing here? He is predicting a time when we as believers in him will be hauled before the courts and before the authorities to answer for our faith. Now that is not happening in America currently. But doesn't, by the trend of things, doesn't it seem like that is where we're going? It is. And it is already true in some parts of the world. It hasn't really hit here yet. But Jesus is predicting that there will become a time when we as his followers who believe in him will be hauled before the authorities to answer for our faith. And so he knows that fear and anxiety will set in during those times because we're going to be struggling to find words to defend ourselves. But Jesus assures us that we need not be anxious about what to say in our defense because the Holy Spirit will in that very hour put words in our mouth so that we know what to say. Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher. I'm sure there are teachers here, and you teach well. Some of you are now retired from that profession, having taught for many years. Jesus is the greatest teacher. This is what John 14 and verse 6 says of the, of the Holy Spirit. I, I meant the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher. Jesus says this of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now those of us who are preachers, and there are some of us here, and those of us who are teachers, and there are many of you who teach God's word, I believe all of us know one thing, and it is this. Even though we spend hours preparing what we need to preach on or teach on, it is the Holy Spirit who puts words in our mouths so that we're able to speak. Speak for him. Here's the bottom line of our message. If you speak up for Jesus here, if you speak up for Jesus here, he will speak up for you there. There's only one application point this morning, which is this. Express your faith in the Son of Man by partaking in communion. And so I can think of no better way to have you respond to this message this morning than by inviting you to come over to the Lord's side if you're not there already. And if you are already on the Lord's side, to show that you're on the Lord's side by partaking of communion. And so you who desire this morning to come to Jesus for the very first time, communion is available for you. You who want to declare that you have faith in Jesus Christ and you're not ashamed to proclaim him as your Lord and Savior, communion is also for you. You who wish to renew your reliance upon the Holy Spirit to teach you all things, to guide you into all truth, Communion is for you. And so as you receive these emblems, the bread and the cup, let them renew your faith. Let them nourish your souls. And let them strengthen you as well. Let us pray together.
Almighty God, we declare this morning our faith in the Son of Man and the Son of God. We publicly acknowledge this morning that it is your death on the cross, the innocent one, the one who poured out his life unto death. It is our faith in what you did for us that makes us worthy because it removes from us every condemnation and every sin. It makes us the righteousness of God. And so this morning we pause to acknowledge that. We pause to ask you, Holy Spirit, to search our hearts, to bring us into conformity with your will in every respect. We ask God that none of us will eat or drink unworthily. But Lord, as we consider our own unworthiness and place our trust in your worthiness, that we'll be able to eat and drink to the health and nourishment and strength of our bodies and our souls. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 